Uh, thank you. Uh, bricklayers and drool and children. <laughs> That's what I do. That's what I do. Uh, I enjoy playing with children, especially nursery children, because I learn a lot about their parents. If you play with those that are about three or four years old and you ask them questions, they'll tell you everything about their family. <clears throat> so as a pastor, it's important to find out how things are going on in the life of people. So I spend time with children because they tell me a lot more than adults do about what's going on in their family. Uh, it makes parents nervous when the pastor hands them their child and he likes the pastor. They're uncertain as to what the pastor has done to... Uh, get somebody's attention that's that young. Um, I'm glad to be here this morning and share with you guys a little bit about what's going on basically in my life. In the last year and a half, uh, one of the strange features of uh, my life is that I have something that every now and then in my experience in dealing with people and the Lord's work and all that that entails plus a lot more, I have sometimes a sensitivity in me that gets turbulent. In the last year and a half, I've been having an unsettledness of soul. Uh, couldn't identify it, shared it with our guys in growth group. Our staff meets every Tuesday morning, the men on staff, at 8.15. We spend an hour and 15 minutes together worshiping the Lord, praying, uh, going over what was talked about Sunday and encouraging one another under the belief that if we're not growing, we can't help anybody else grow. But I shared, as we're supposed to share in that meeting, about a year ago, that there was turbulence of soul. Then a few months later, I felt compelled in a service at our church, to, and it's not one service anymore, it's five, but to stand up and, and apologize. Not necessarily for me or what I had or had not done, but for my generation. For my generation of Christians that are leaving you, your inheritance, in terms of spiritual things in this nation and this world. And I'll be very frank with you, my assessment and at least part of the turbulence of soul was the fact that folks that are in my age bracket, which in my mind is still very young, but it's I'm about 45, between the ages of 40 and 55, that generation of Christians hasn't left you guys, quite frankly, a whole lot. And so I felt duty-bound to at least try and vent this kind of upsetness of soul by saying, I'm sorry, but I'm not done. For whatever time the Lord gives me remaining in my life, I'm going to do my best to try and recover some of the ground that I think my generation has lost. And you say, well, what exactly did your generation do that has left us where we are? Number one, my generation refined the faith to the point of sterility. We were so busy defending the faith and defining the faith and maintaining its purity, which should be done to some degree, that we've rendered it inoperative in the lives of people. There are people who attend our churches who believe that you have to have a Ph.D. in Greek to explain the gospel to someone. We did that to you. We turned sanctuaries into classrooms. We turned the Bible into a textbook. And in the process, we have a generation of Christians that are coming up right now and a whole bunch of pagans that don't have a clue about what this is about. They think it's a study. They think it's an academic, scholastic exercise when in fact it's a lifestyle. Another thing my generation has done is we institutionalized our energies and ourselves to the point of immobility and paralysis. We have created institutions, not believers who instigate the gospel. 
We have created large, almost dinosaur-like things that have a hard time flexing with the times. We live in times that are moving so quickly. The institutions that are supposed to be creating, developing, and maintaining the kingdom of God have been passed by in mock speed. And my generation planted them firmly in rock tradition. My generation made money off of our faith, but they didn't make much of a difference with their faith. It is my generation that has spawned the Christian uh, kind of venue of commercialism. We have created a way to make money with the gospel. Whether it's a book or a tape or a song, we made it the most lucrative that it's ever been. In some circles, it is very, very uh, wise of you to choose a career in a Christian venture because you're going to make money. We did that. We created consumer Christians and not Christ-consumed Christians. We've created people who will drop the church that they're at at a moment's notice if they feel they can go somewhere else and drag their family and get something a little bit better. There are people who attend a church during the week to get this or that or the other thing, and then they go to another church on Sunday. They have become consumer Christians. Consumer theology is invading the way that we practice church. We are rapidly exchanging this book as a guideline for church life for these kinds of books. This book is called The Frog in the Kettle by George Barnett. It's got some good things. I've learned a lot of things from it, but I've also learned that some of my fellow associates, one of whom I'm having lunch with down in La Mirada, California, not too long from now, have begun to believe that this is the Bible for the year 2000 in the church, not this. We did that to you. You say, dandy, how are we going to fix this thing? Well, crazy guys like me that don't worry about money as much anymore are still loose in this world. Those of us that believe that security and in institutions has to be shaken. This morning I've come over here looking for offensive Christians. You say, great, I know some here. Not that kind. I'm not talking about the kind that's rude, the kind that spends their time and measures their spirituality and sanctification by how many people are mad at them. But I'm looking for Christians who will begin to take off defensive and begin to mount offensive. My wife and I recently were hooked into speaking at a couples retreat at our church. There were about 90 couples there. One of the big questions was about children and raising children. I'm still in the process of doing that. I have a daughter who's 20, I have a son who's 16, and another boy who's 15. They asked us, how do you keep your children off of drugs? How do you keep them... Uh, in school how do you keep them out of gangs I don't know exactly except when Sharon and I started having kids we decided that we would raise weapons that our kids would be on the offense with their faith wherever they were when they went to school I wanted them on the offense if they got pulled out of class for being offensive with their faith they knew they would not be in trouble unless they'd had to fight someone over it we, in our desire at home, have been trying and are still in the process of trying to raise weapons because we don't believe that our children, being encased in a fortress, will protect them. We believe that they have to take it to the system that we live in and are a part of. 
And that's what I came looking for this morning. Offensive Christians. People who are willing to not bemoan the circumstances and the heritage that unfortunately in many cases my generation has left you, but who are ready to say it's time to change things. It's time, despite the institutional directions and the traditional expectations that have almost imprisoned us in Christianity and rendered our country now by the statement of the former seminary uh, president in Denver as post-Christian. What Francis Schaeffer wrote about about 20 years ago and put in video has now happened. You and I live in the post-Christian America. What are we going to do? Where are we going to look? There are two places, I think, in the New Testament that a person must look if they're going to stop being complicated and start being effective. If they're going to stop pretending to be sophisticated and begin to be people who are radically transformed and agents of the gospel that cannot be denied. One of those is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. The first sermon that Jesus preached was the pattern. It was the simplistic expression of kingdom truth. We have to see that. For those of you who are aspiring preachers, I remind you that read slowly and carefully, it can be read in 13 minutes. There are some who believe in preaching, and that's one of the institutional things that's happened to us, that length means depth. That's stupid. Longer does not mean deeper, nor does deeper mean you have to be longer. If our Lord Jesus could set the pattern in his first public presentation, the recorded part of it being read aloud by us in 13 minutes, we need to think seriously. The other place is the Thessalonian epistles. Take a look there in your Bibles if you got them with you this morning. Offensive Christians, what are they like? What has to be at the root that makes a person an infectious, effective, substantial, decisive, radical believer? I am convinced that if a regular Christian came back from the book of Acts and got into our community, he or she would be labeled a fanatic. So far have we lulled ourselves to sleep with our approach to Christianity. And you say, does anyone else share your opinion with you? This guy does, starting in page 111 of his book. But another man whose writing I appreciate so much put his finger on it as well. He writes, pollsters tell us that 50 million Americans say they are born again. Evangelicals have come out of the closet in recent years, accompanied by a surge of Christian books records, celebrities, and candidates. No doubt about it, religion is up, but so are values unremittingly opposed to the truth of Christianity. One out of every two marriages shatters in divorce. And you would say to me, obviously, those are pagan marriages. In my experience and the experience of those who study things, generally speaking, Christian marriages run along the same statistics. One out of three pregnancies terminates in abortion. Homosexuality is no longer considered depravity, but, and I quote, an alternative lifestyle. Crime continues to, to soar in Christian America. There are 100 times more burglaries in Christian America than in pagan Japan. How are we going to change that? Well, I think you need offensive Christians. The Thessalonians were offensive Christians. They took... What happened to them with the gospel? 
and it dramatically affected the world that they were in. How wide was their influence? Look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1. Paul writes to them, The word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth, so that you, we have no need to say anything. Didn't get there by tapes, didn't get there by mail, didn't get there by a video, and it didn't get there by a seminar. The best advertisement for any growing, going spiritual concern is word of mouth. And the word had traveled far from Thessalonica, north and as well to the east. Look as well at chapter 2, verse 13. How offensive were they? And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. In other words, Paul says, you folks received the word as the word of God, even though we as men spoke it to you. Look at verse 14. How are they handling pressure? For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Persecution. The word is trumpeted forth. In chapter 4, 9 and 10, they are loving the brethren. Chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, they're encouraging one another and building up one another. But at the core, what will make you an offensive Christian and make my search this morning a little more encouraging? Back in chapter 1, please notice what had happened to these people. They were changed, radically altered by the gospel. Verse 9 of chapter 1, For they themselves report about us, what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Folks, I'll tell you at the core of an offensive Christian is a changed person. One of the problems that we're increasingly facing in our presentation of the gospel and explanation of the gospel in the lives of people is that there are many people who believe that the gospel serves simply to adjust them, to some way appreciate their character. My friends, we are in the alteration business. The gospel is designed to radically change lives. One of the difficulties of many of you in this room is that you came to know Jesus Christ early in your life. After all, if you came to know Christ when you were five and prayed with your mom, the toughest thing you'd probably gotten into was breaking a cookie jar or maybe going, you know, messing your pants at the wrong time or something. Five-year-olds are relatively into narcotics. They rarely... Uh, go out and rob stores. They don't have... Many of you who came to know Christ early in your life, one of the struggles you have is to ask yourself, am I radically changed by the gospel? This brother shared, and I worked with a man for three years. I was his associate pastor. He told me in the three years that I was with him that he did not know the gospel. He was not a Christian until he had been in the ministry four years, pastoring a church. You see, the nature of our faith and what my generation has done is we have developed a number of buzzwords that are easily adaptable. And in our desire to be incredibly relevant to a culture that is struggling with esteem, we have begun to make the gospel sound like it's an appreciation process. It's a slight adjustment. The gospel we preach is a life-altering, life-changing message. And people who come in touch with the gospel should be forever changed. 
So for those of you who maybe prayed early in life to receive Christ, I urge you to ask yourselves in the twilight zone of your semester, which is after your exams, your first round of exams, and two and a half to three weeks before you get out for spring break, this is known as the twilight zone. And it's time for you to ask yourselves, perhaps in between probably getting papers and other stuff done, am I really changed and am I changing? Is there a sharp and distinct contrast? Have I turned from to? And if you haven't, and it's very possible that you haven't, you need to come to grips with what this brother was mentioning earlier. The Spirit of God is working in your life, and some fool like me up here holler it away about the fact that you ought to be changed, and you look at your life over the last five years that you can consciously recall anything, and you say to yourself, you know, there really hasn't been any dramatic change, nothing radical. I urge you, don't shortchange the gospel. It radically alters the people it touches. People who are offensive Christians will deal with conversion that really converts. They will also deal with ministry that really ministers. Look at chapter 2. The Apostle Paul now rises to the occasion to defend his ministry. And you say, why did he did Why did he did it? Nothing wrong with me. Why did he have to do that? According to Acts 17, verse 2, the Apostle probably was at Thessalonica for only three or four weeks. The indication is that after he left, there was all kinds of pressure. In fact, in verse 10 of Acts 17, the reason he had to leave was because of pressure. And so now he writes back, and those who pressured also slandered. They tried to erode the ministry by suggesting that he had improper motives. The first six verses of chapter 2 are his response to what kind of ministry won't create offensive Christians. A ministry that is based on cowardice, afraid. You say, is fear here? Look at chapter 2, verse 2. The implication was, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. We came to you even though we had been jailed at Philippi. We are not afraid, but a ministry that is based on cowardice will not prepare offensive Christians. One that is based on error, impurity, deceit, pleasing men, flattering speech, greed, or glory from men will not make offensive Christians. That's why my generation has made all-stars out of certain Christians, leaders, singers, pastors, teachers. We've made heroes out of them. It's so much easier to make a hero out of someone than it is to obey the truth. Now, often glory from men has crept into the church of Jesus Christ and people do what they do, not because what God says, but because of what men will say good about them when they do it. You say, what kind of ministry will minister? Look at verse 7. He begins to describe how they really came among them. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Oh, for a return to gentleness. Uh, it's a great picture. It's a picture of a nursing mom. How many of you have ever seen a nursing mother? Of course, in our culture, it's a little embarrassing. But as you get older, it won't embarrass you as much. But when you see a nursing mother, have you ever seen a mother who's nursing her child pick up the kid? Hey, come here. Eat. <laughs> have you seen that? If you do, call 911. Why? No, this is a great picture of gentleness. 
kindness, carefulness. You don't create offensive Christians in a blender. It needs to be done in a sense of gentleness and carefulness. And apparently the implication was that Paul's ministry had been one of roughness and directness. Perhaps his Corinthian reputation had traveled over. The point is gentleness, to be gentle with one another in this ministry. But there's more. Look at the next verse. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. We not only gave you the goods, we gave you us. The word translated New American Standard own lives in your margin is souls. We gave you our soul. What has happened in my generation is we professionalized ministry. Everything else was being professional. Doctors were professional. Lawyers were professional. Even garbage collection is professional. So now we must be professional. Just get in there. Give the goods. Make a polished presentation. But for goodness sake, don't get emotionally involved with those people. Don't get to where you could actually say, as the apostle says, we had a fun. We like you. We enjoyed being with you. My generation, unfortunately, has not let their character be developed to the point that they love and like the people they work with. They tolerated them just long enough so they could move to another place or do another thing. I tell you, young people now, one of the greatest privileges in my life is to have a fond affection for people and to look them in the eye that I know fairly well and tell them that I love them and I mean it. I'm not trying to smear a little love grease on them and make them super saints. I care for them. I'm concerned about how they're doing. I love them. I not only give them as best I can the truth on a week-to-week -week basis, I care for those people. I live in this community. I buy my groceries at Alpha Beta and Lucky, depending on who has the cheapest prices. Uh, I get my hamburgers at Wendy when I really want grease, and when I really want cholesterol, I go to Tommy's Burgers. I live here, and I see these people outside. They are my family. Many of them have taught my children in public schools. A lot of them have coached my children in athletic contests. I love them and I care for them so that when I give out whatever I give out, I give out more than just the goods. Somehow it's a piece of me. Sometimes it's very expensive because I've buried a lot of my friends. And we pastors sometimes don't have the opportunity to grieve like others because our job is to conduct a funeral. But one of the risks of this verse is the fact that you will bury your friends you will care for them. You will love them. That's the kind of ministry that makes offensive Christians. But there's more. Look at the next verse in the text. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. We're not going to make offensive Christians by pushing buttons and pulling levers. It's going to take hard work. Paul's work here is a mixture. Number one, he was working, making probably tents, so he wouldn't financially burden his people. At the same time, when he wasn't making tents, he was sharing the gospel. Young people, one of the greatest traps in any ministry you find is the temptation to laziness. There are a lot of things institutionally that can happen by institutional inertia. And one of the great, great weaknesses of ministry today is people who are concerned they're going to be overworked. The American principle is how little work can I do for what? For the most amount of money. And that has crept into our churches and into institutions. One of the things that will develop offensive Christians is hard work. Get in there and dig. There's a little more. Look at verse 10. You are witnesses and so is God 
how devoutly, uprightly, and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. There is no substitute for character. None. Please understand that. No matter what you say, no matter how gentle you are with people, no matter how hard you work, if there is no character, no ethical, moral standard that holds you and anchors you and is based on God himself, we will not develop anything that radically alters anything else. Please understand that. Character. How is your walk? Is it devout? Some of you don't know, but I see you in this community. I see how you drive. I see how you wait in line or don't wait in line. I see you at the movies, buying tickets to things you might not ought to be seeing. I watch you. I see you. You see me. I'm out there. I'm in a red Jeep with a hat on. That's me. I see you. You see me. How's your walk? Is it devout? Is it upright? Is it blameless? Do you understand that we have nothing to say if we live in contradiction to what we're saying? Paul says we did not live in contradiction to the ministry that we brought to you. Look at verse 11. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. You get the distinct impression that ministry that turns out offensive Christians is a family ministry. It's a matter of considering one another as family. He has bracketed his defense and description of ministry by two family terms. A nursing mother, an imploring and encouraging father. Please understand, that's what it's going to take. I was fortunate in the first three years that I went to Bible school to be stuck in a dormitory on one block with a thousand students. We became a family. Not as much as perhaps you're able to here, but we became a family. And after 20 plus years of being gone from that place, it is still possible for me to call and begin to talk with someone that I haven't seen in two, three, four, five, six, or seven years and feel as though we've never been apart. Because for us, ministry was a family-oriented affair. You've got to understand that. Many of you in this room live your lives as individuals, independent of others. The radical Christian, the one that will alter forever the course of wherever you live, will understand that the nature of ministry is a family ministry, and nothing will change that. Please understand as well that radical Christians will be formed by teaching that really teaches. You say, what are you talking about? Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 2. For you know what commandment we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And some of you are taking theology classes immediately. Think, oh, yes, right. Hagias, hagiazo, hagiale, you know. Yeah, there's, there's pre and there's post and there's this and there's positional, progressive. What's that other P? You know, how did, eventual. It's not P, but it works. You know, you get to thinking about that, don't you? When you see that big word sanctification, some of us do. Look how earthy Paul is about it. When it comes to holiness, what? That is that you abstain from what? 
Hey, don't get all lost in your Greek words. Stay out of bed. Is that kind of blunt? That's truth. Look at the rest. He doesn't stop there. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. Don't get all theological with sanctification. Oh, yeah, understand it. But understand, you can compromise every Greek word related to holiness in about ten minutes of passion. Paul says, stay out of the sack with people that you're not married to. Sleep with your wife. Yeah, but don't sleep with... Possess your vessel in honor. You say, why would he raise this? Because I think that this particular area of life for two reasons. Because of its privacy and the private nature of it, even though people are making movies out of it now. And also because of its potency. It's one of the great areas of failure. Paul says, don't. When it comes to sanctification, don't get all airheady about it. Be careful about your sexual life. That is particularly pertinent. Also, be careful about your relationship with others. Look at verse 9. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. You love each other, and you keep doing that. Even when the pressure's on, even when exams are on, even when someone jumps in front of you over here at your cafeteria, or someone uh, plays dodgem with you out here on the crosswalks on Placerita Canyon. And they come by and they almost get you. And it was a brother in the Lord that wanted to see you in Jesus' presence and was going to assist you in that process. Your first thought is, you know, die like a camel. No, love the brethren. Nice shot, brother. Hope you can do better next time. Amen. Huh? How do you love the brethren around here? Well, you say, I walk by and I don't gripe. How did Paul love the brethren? Take a look at 2 Thessalonians, real quick, chapter 1. This is something we need to do more with Christians. This is teaching that teaches. This is stuff that gets down where people live. Verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because our faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. I love you, and I want to tell you I love you because when I pray, and I'm writing my prayer for anyone to read, I thank God for you. What else do I do? Look at verse 4. Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. At the risk of being contradictory this morning, I suggest that one of the ways that you... Love the brethren is when one of the brethren or the cistern do something correctly in the Lord. Go up and say, good job. Thank you. I'm not saying because they do athletic things well or academic things well. But when they demonstrate under the pressure of the moment that Jesus Christ is alive in their life and it's unmistakably there, will you be the person that walks up to him? I did that not too long ago to a young boy in our church who plays high school basketball. He got his brains beat out in a basketball game. He was getting all the tough calls. He had some people that were muggers that were guarding him. And I don't know how he kept from losing his cool. Finally, the coach penalized him by sitting him on the bench because it didn't look like he was doing well, but it wasn't his fault. He sat there, smiled, cheered his team on, did all kinds of things that I would want a believer to do under that kind of pressure. I was in my typical incognito uniform, Levi's hat and sweatshirt. I walked up to him and I said, good game. And he looked at me, he didn't know who I was. He said, who are you? I said, I'm your pastor. 
Then he turned white. And I said, no. I said, give me your hand. And I shook his hand and I said, thank you. I am proud to be associated with Christ and with you because of the way you conducted yourself tonight. Do you know what that'll do to believers if we begin to do that rather than talking about what believers have weaknesses? You're going to make their month. That's called edification. Folks, I came here this morning just to share with you briefly about something that is disturbing my soul. Myself, along with others in my generation, haven't left you a great heritage. But as long as the Lord gives me breath and life, I'm going to do what I can to change that pattern. And one of my models is going to be the Thessalonian church. We're going to talk about conversion that really converts people. We're going to talk about teaching that really teaches so that people not only are heady, but they're lively. And I'm also going to make sure that I'm involved with a ministry that really ministers. Maybe this will help you understand where my heart is this morning, and I hope someday your heart will be. Abraham Kuyper wrote the following, When principles that run against your deepest convictions begin to win the day, then battle is your calling. Peace has become sin. You must, at the price of dearest peace, lay your convictions bare before friend and enemy with all the fire of your faith. And I'm an oldies but goodies hymnal man, and there's a guy who said it even better. Sound the battle cry. See the foe is nigh. Raise the standard high for the Lord. Gird your armor on. Stand firm, everyone. Christ is captain of the mighty throng. Roused in soldiers. Rally round the banner. Ready. Steady. Pass the word along. Onward. Forward. Shout aloud, Hosanna. Christ is captain of the mighty throng. I'm looking for offensive Christians, and I'm going to start being one. I hope you'll join me. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for us with all of the demands on the lives of these folks and mine. We get so busy with so many things, we forget to be busy with the things that are important. Institutions insulate and protect us, and sometimes, quite frankly, they cripple us. I pray that this group of people, from this day forward, will understand what it means to be offensive. That we will stop retreating behind classrooms and theological terms, and we will explode out of this place into a world that needs to see we are convinced that what we believe and know is right and it's working in us and it'll work for them. I pray in the healthiest sense you will make us offensive in the highest order for Jesus' sake. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you.